Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us sing. So it was over 10 years ago, but I remember it uh, quite clearly. I was teaching a class at Biola University uh, where I teach, and uh, there were about 25 graduate students in this class, and we were around a big, long uh, rectangle table. And I was up front uh, holding forth on uh, the theology of the Christian life and how to make progress in becoming more like Jesus. And one of my students uh, directly opposite me on the other end of the table, he raised his hand. I called on him, and he said, Dr. Porter, what's the matter with where we're at? And, and I, his name was Jim, and I said, uh, Jim, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And he said, whenever I take your classes, it always seems like you're pointing somewhere else. You're, you're telling us that if, if only we believed certain things more, or we understood something, or we, we practiced something, then the Christian life would be better. We'd be more like Jesus. You're always pointing us someplace else, and I get the feeling like there's something wrong with where we're at. What's the matter with where we're at? And uh, I was stunned by Jim's question. I, I felt like it was an important question. And so I, I dug down deep into my professorial wisdom and I said, nothing. <laughs> nothing is the matter with where you're at. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he comes to us right where we're at. And, and he loves us there. And he accepts us there, and he forgives us there. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5 that, that God demonstrates his love, his agape love for us in this, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
That, that right in the midst of our sin, God demonstrates His love for us right where we're at, right where we find ourselves. He demonstrates His love for us, and he, He's willing to die for us. Paul elsewhere says there's, there's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you and me from the love of God. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've left undone, God comes to us right where we're at. And, and sometimes I wonder if church can feel a little bit like my class felt to Jim. We, we come in here week after week, and there's always somebody up here, sometimes it's me, and they're pointing us somewhere else. They're, they're pointing us to a better way of life with Jesus. They're pointing us to a better way to live life together, always pointing us someplace else, and we can get the feeling sometimes, perhaps, that there's something wrong with where we're at. And I just want to say to you all this morning, nothing. There's, there's nothing wrong with where we're at. Uh, Jesus comes to us right where we're at. And I wanted to start with that this morning because Jesus is always coming to his disciples right where he finds them. He, he takes them right where he finds them. He loves them. He accepts them. He forgives them. And he then invites them to take a walk with him. He, he sums up this, this way that he goes about doing this in, in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, wherever you find yourself, and, and take up my yoke, he says, and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, I am, I am gentle and humble. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He comes to his followers. He comes to us today, and he says, come to me, wherever you find yourself, and take up my way of life. Learn from me. And part, we've been going through the series on the Lord's Prayer, as uh, perhaps all of you or most of you know. And part of what he wants us to learn from him is how to pray. How to pray. How to live life in his Father's kingdom under his Father's rule and reign. And central to that is communication with God. And so Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. As Daniel has mentioned in this, uh, as we've been going through this text, that, that the disciples, at least in Luke's gospel, uh, they're, they're asking teach us to pray. They're learners. They, they don't know how to do it. They, they see Jesus praying, and they say, teach us how to do that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're eventually going to end up in, in Matthew's gospel, but turn with me to Luke chapter 11. It's on page uh, 869 in the blue Bibles that are tucked underneath your seat, and it's in your Bible app on your cell phone. Don't know what page that is. But if you turn to, to Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples, one of his learners, his disciples, said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. This is an interesting scene because uh, I wonder what it looked like when Jesus prayed. I have a friend, and, and he, his prayers sometimes uh, catch people off guard because he'll just be talking normally, and then all of a sudden he'll just say, Lord, uh, just be with us right now. And, and he'll just go right into prayer. It's real seamless. And I wonder if Jesus was kind of like that. I, I bet, I bet the, 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 the seam was pretty thin. The veil was pretty thin for Jesus. 
He might have just moved right into prayer. Whatever his prayer life was like, the disciples, his students, his, his learners, they see him pray and they say, can you teach us to do that? How do you do that, Jesus? And, and we see the language of discipleship. They say, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. Uh, we know from John's gospel that at least two of Jesus' 12 disciples were formerly disciples of John the Baptist. They had followed John the Baptist, and he had been their teacher, their rabbi, and now they're following Jesus. So they knew that John the Baptist taught his students how to pray. Now they're coming to Jesus and say, Jesus, why don't you teach us? And part of what this reminds us is that following Jesus isn't just about getting our sins forgiven so we can go to heaven when we die. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just about believing the right things or doing the right things or having certain private experiences with Jesus, but it's an overall way of life. It's, it's a way of practice. Teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Jesus was teaching his followers how to enter into life in his Father's kingdom, under his Father's rule and reign. And central to that was prayer. Now, there's a couple reasons, I think, why we need to pay particular attention to Jesus' teaching here. Um, The first one is because Jesus is the smartest human person who's ever lived. Have you ever thought about that? When you see lists of the smartest people in human history, uh, I checked, Jesus doesn't often show up. It's folks like Einstein and Copernicus and Leonardo da Vinci and Marie Curie, very brilliant folks, no doubt. But we often don't think about Jesus as someone who was really dang smart. That Jesus had the best information on how to live life well. He had the best information. And so we want to pay attention when Jesus talks. Now, I'm going to date myself here, but some of you, maybe too few to make this illustration worth sharing, but here we go. Uh, Some of you remember this old commercial, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. There was a commercial that went around, I think it was the late 70s, and E.F. Hutton was a financial advisor, and and the tagline for the commercial was, when E.F. Hutton talks and everyone would lean in, people listen. I take it E.F. Hutton was pretty bright when it comes to financial dealings, and when he gave some financial advice, people listened. Well, see, Jesus is pretty bright when it comes to how to live the human life well. He's the brightest there's ever been. And so we want to pay attention. We want to be on the the edge of our seats when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Sometimes I think we come to the Bible because it's, well, it's the Bible. It's God's Word. It's inspired. Uh, We come to Jesus' teachings and we say, well, he's God. Yeah, but we need to think he was the smartest human being who's ever walked this earth. I need to pay attention. If if he has something to share with us, it better be good, and it's going to be good. And so we come to Jesus with that posture. Even more so, it looks like this is the second time that Jesus teaches his disciples this very same prayer. Uh, Now, we're going to look in Matthew in a second, but uh, in Matthew we see the prayer presented within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. 
which was pretty early in Jesus' ministry, according to Matthew's accounting of things. In Luke's gospel, uh, we see the same sort of material that we see in the Sermon on the Mount fairly early in Luke's gospel, but the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, doesn't show up there. It doesn't show up until chapter 11. And as we saw, the the context in in chapter 11 is the disciples seeing Jesus praying, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. It looks like something like this might have happened. Jesus taught early on in his ministry that when you pray, pray like this. And he told them the Lord's Prayer. That was Matthew's account, and we'll look at that. And then maybe six months, a year or more later, the disciples see Jesus praying, and they say, hey, teach us to pray. And he says the exact same thing. It, it would kind of be like, you know, asking E.F. Hutton, you know, back in the, in the, in the early 80s, uh, is there some company I should invest in? And maybe he would say, well, there's this little struggling company called Microsoft. You might want to try them, you know. And then six months or a year later, say to E.F. Hutton, is there a company I should invest in? And he says, you might want to try Microsoft. We should really pay attention if he repeats it twice. And we should have paid attention back in the 80s when we did. Um, I hear if you invested in Microsoft, when when the initial public offering, $1,000, I forget what it is, but it's it's millions. You'd you'd have millions now. So, Um, dang. So I want to turn now to Matthew's gospel. Enough about E.F. Hutton. Let's let's look at how Jesus sets up the prayer. So I'm at uh, Matthew 6. This is on page uh, 811 in your pew Bibles. And Ramona uh, read for us this passage starting in verse 5. I think in order to, to really understand the Lord's Prayer, it's important to see it in its context, and I've appreciated the, the sermons that Daniel's given and, and Esther and, and Eric as we've gone through uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's been very, very rich. But starting in verse 5, Jesus starts out by teaching how not to pray, by teaching how not to pray. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Um, that word really is, uh, comes out of theater. It's Uh, Don't pray like you're acting. Don't pray like you're pretending. Don't pray like those hypocrites. You must not be like them, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, they've received what they're going to get. They've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This, this word reward isn't, isn't meant to conjure up ideas of merit. It's more kind of getting what you put into it. See, the hypocrites, they pray to be seen by others. They pray to impress others. They, they pray thinking about what others are thinking about what they're saying. And, and Jesus says, well, they're going to get as much as they put into it. They're not going to get anything. There's no result in their relationship with God because they're not even praying to God. They're, they're praying to the people around them. They're praying some sense of social identity or social inclusion. And Jesus' intervention is beautiful here. He says, if, if you've been dealing with trying to pray such that other people are, are hearing you and you're thinking about what they might think, then here's what you do, Jesus says. You go into a room and you shut the door where no one can see you. And that would fix it, wouldn't it? If your motivation to prayer has been, what are other people going to think about me? And now you're in a room by yourself and no one can see you. And you realize the only person who can see you is God the Father who can see in secret. 
He can see what's concealed. He can see what's hidden. In fact, this intervention that Jesus has is is probably really powerful. There's a little bit of sense that these people have been pretending in prayer. They've been doing something on the outside that's not going on on the inside. They're hiding in prayer. And now he says, go into a room, close the doors, and God can see what you're hiding. The only one who can see you now is the God who can see through walls and he can see through and into the human heart. See, what's my motivation to pray now? And then he goes on, he says, and by the way, in verse 7, when you pray, and notice he is assuming his disciples will be praying, and when you pray, here's another way not to do it. Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, the pagans. Remember, in the ancient world, there's the Jews, and then there's everybody else. And from the Jewish perspective, they're pagans, the Gentiles. They don't believe in Yahweh. So Jesus says, don't pray like them either. You know what they do? They heap up empty phrases for they think they'll be heard for their many words. So what's their motive in prayer? It's not so that others will see them. It's not to impress other people. It's to impress the gods. They they think that they'll be heard by the gods if they say a lot of empty phrases. It's some sort of superstitious manipulation of the deities. And Jesus says, don't pray that way either. That's not who God is. They have their reward in full. God's not being stingy here. Uh, He's not being picky. He, He doesn't want to relate to his children other than how he really is. He doesn't want to engage their prayers in a way that distorts their view of him and their view of themselves. So he sa- Jesus says, don't pray this way. It's not going to work. It's not going to do you any good. And the intervention here is different. The intervention isn't to go into a closet by yourself, but Jesus says uh, in verse 8, do not be like them, for your father, your pater, your your father, the one who provides for you, the one who protects you, the one who has committed to care for you. God, your father, knows what you need before you ask him. Well, there's another brilliant intervention. If you're praying, trying to get God to do what you want him to do, here's a real quick fix. Realize that the one who's already committed to care for you already knows what you need. He already knows what you need. What, what are you going to do now? So, so look at where Jesus gets us, right? He gets us in a room by ourselves with an audience of one where the, no one else can see or hear us except the God who sees everything. And he's already committed himself to care for us. He's our father, and he already knows what we really need. What are you going to do now? How are you going to pray now? Jesus sets up the Lord's Prayer by taking away distorted ways of interacting with God. And I think part of what this shows is the importance that Jesus has for clearing the way to develop communion with his Father in the right sort of way, to really begin to commune and relate to God as he is, not as we wish him to be, not as we'd like him to be, but for who he really is. And so then he comes to the Lord's Prayer that's there in Matthew's account. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Now, we're focusing today on the line that says, uh, verse um, 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, i got to remember, I've got a few slides here. Uh, this is from the message. Uh, this is part of the setup here. Uh, paraphrase of the first part of Jesus' teaching. Uh, when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play, to act before God. Pretend. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. So that's the setup for the Lord's Prayer. And then we get to this line, uh, lead us not into temptation or lead us not into testing. And what is Jesus trying to show his students here? Well, we have to remember that in the book of James, it says that God doesn't tempt anyone. So this isn't the idea that God wants to tempt us or wants to tempt his disciples. It's a prayer that God won't lead us into a place where we will be tempted. Again, the book of James says that it's actually our own desires that tempt us. We get into situations where we have a desire to sin and now we're tempted. And so the prayer is, Lord, protect us from those situations. There's a prayer of intentionality in here and also a prayer of weakness. The prayer of intentionality is something like this. If I'm asking God not to put me in situations where I'm going to be tempted, I must already have an intention not to sin. If I don't want to be tempted, I I must be starting my day thinking something like, Lord, I don't want to sin today. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to lie. I don't want to steal. I don't want to get angry on the freeway and cuss people out. I don't want to be jealous and envious. I don't want to lust. God, I I don't want to enter into that today. So, Lord, please don't put me in situations where my worst desires will get the best of me. That's the prayer of weakness. Lord, I don't want to sin, and I'm weak. And so I know if I get in the right sort of situations, I might fail. Lord, please guide me away from those places. As I attempt and do my best not to sin today and not be tempted, please help me in that. You know what's interesting about this is is Jesus was right on the mark here. Social scientists have been doing studies for a long, long time now that show that otherwise moral, decent people who are put in the right sort of situation will do vicious things. One of my favorite experiments of this sort was at Princeton Theological Seminary. So that's not my own seminary, so I can throw them under the bus. So uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. It was an experiment where they took these theology students and they, they brought them into a room And uh, they gave them some tests about kind of how they viewed their relationship with God and how they viewed morality. And then they told them that they wanted them to take some time and prepare a talk on the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. And they were going to give this talk in another building across campus. 
And so they spent some time preparing a talk on the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story about the two people who pass by the person who's hurt, and then the Samaritan actually comes and helps the person who's hurt. And then they told these theology students, after they had prepared their talk, that they needed to hurry across campus to give their talk. Now, what the experimenters had set up that the theology students didn't know is when they left the building, they were going to have to go out a little alleyway, a very narrow alleyway, and the the experimenters had an actor there who was bent over, coughing and groaning. And so these seminary students, one by one, left their experiment. They didn't realize that this was all part of it. And they had to walk by someone who was in need while they're going to give a talk on the story of the Good Samaritan. Brilliant study. And, um, and so, guess what? When they told the, the theology student that they had plenty of time to get to the building across campus to give their talk on the Good Samaritan, hang on, I have the statistics here, ah, 63% stopped and offered help to the person when they told them they had plenty of time. 63%. That's not too good, but it's not too bad. But then they told the next uh, group of students that were leaving that they better hurry and they would make it just on time for the talk. And when they put them in that condition, only 45% stopped to help the person who was obviously in need. But when they told the theology student that they were late, that they had to hurry because they were late for their talk, only 10% stopped to help. See, Lord, lead us not into temptation. My virtue is not as well-formed as it needs to be. And if I'm put in the wrong sort of situations, I fail. When we come to this part of the prayer, we are acknowledging our weakness. We're acknowledging that we're trying, Lord, to live the life you've called us to. And yet we know we're weak. Lord, don't put us in situations where we'll fail. And then Jesus goes on, to say, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Now, you have to remember here that the prayer starts out by letting us know that we're in this already not yet kingdom situation, that that we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done fully on earth as it is in heaven. And so that signals to us that, that God's kingdom has not fully come. We live in the already but not yet, as Daniel talked about a few weeks back. We live in a a situation where God has permitted things to go otherwise than how he desires them to go. God's kingdom has not come fully. His will is not done fully. He's allowed it so that other things, other wills, can have their say in this world. This is what we call God's permissive will rather than his perfect will. God's perfect will is done in the heavens, but God's permissive will, he permits things to go other than how he would want them to go. And so evil occurs. Bad things happen. Things don't always go the way God wants them to go. And so here we're saying, God, as we live in the already but not yet, deliver us from evil I think this stanza too, this phrase too, is also a prayer of intention and a prayer of weakness, a prayer of intentionality and a prayer of vulnerability. We're saying, God, we are committing ourselves 
to avoid and eradicate evil as much as we can. But we know we live in an imperfect world, so deliver us from as much of the evil that we can't avoid and eradicate as you can. Deliver us, Lord, from the evil in this world, whether it's the evil that's done by the demonic realm or the evil that occurs just in a naturally fallen world or whether it's the evil that's perpetrated by human persons against each other. Deliver us, Lord, as best you can. So I want to talk a little bit as I close about how to use this prayer. Again, Jesus was the smartest human person who's ever lived, and so when the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray, I assume this prayer is loaded with meaning. And I would love to double-click on each phrase in the mind of Jesus. When Jesus says, our Father, what, what all is he thinking of? When he says, who is in the heavens, how does he imagine that? See, I have to think that when Jesus said these words, whole worlds of meaning were behind them. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't just want to recite it in some sort of rote way. We want to double-click. We, we want to double-click on the Our Father and go into all of what Jesus had in mind. We want to double-click on the who is in the heavens and go into all of what Jesus had in mind. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We want the prayer to open up a whole world that was Jesus' world that he's inviting his disciples into. There's, a, there's an early Christian document. In fact, many scholars would say that this document is the, the earliest Christian uh, literature we have outside of the books of the New Testament. It's called the Didache, the Didache, which just means the teaching. And uh, most scholars now date it around 100 A.D., so about 10 or so years after the, the last book of the Bible is written, uh, the early Christian church wrote the Didache. We don't know who wrote it, but it was a, it was a manual for new Christian converts. The early church took discipleship and, and formation into the ways of Jesus. They took it very seriously because they were living in a culture that was antagonistic to Christians. And so they knew they needed to immerse new converts into the fullness of life with Jesus. And so the Didache is this document that talks about how to train early Christians into life with Jesus. And in that document, it says that new converts to Christianity should pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And so very early in church history, we see the church appropriating this prayer and encouraging it as a model, a form of prayer. And it likely was not just, just to recite it verbatim. Because another thing we see early in church history is we see uh, various Christian leaders using the Lord's Prayer as a teaching tool, as a catechesis. And what they'll do is they'll take each stanza and they'll write one or two paragraphs, Our Father, then they'll unpack that. Who art in heaven, then they'll unpack that. Hallowed be thy name, then they'll unpack that in a few paragraphs. These, these early Christian treatises on the Lord's Prayer are rampant throughout the first few centuries and really all the way through the church. 
Uh, we see it in Cyril, in, in Origen, Tertullian has one, Augustine has one, and on and on it goes all the way to Luther and Calvin up until the present time. I was looking on Amazon this week and someone just came out with another meditation on the Lord's Prayer a couple months ago. And so we continue to do it. But, but the key there is what we're doing is we're taking each stanza and we're meditating on the meaning of that stanza. And that's a very helpful way to pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, um, who's a, uh, who was a preacher uh, in, in uh, London back in the 19th century, he did a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. And this is what Spurgeon said up here. And so a person may use this form of prayer and yet be a total stranger to the great design of Christ in teaching it to his disciples. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, There are many sins which I must confess separately and distinctly, not just forgive us our sins. And the various other petitions which this prayer contains require, I feel, he says, to be expanded when I come before God in private prayer. He said, Let none despise this prayer. It is matchless. And if we, have, and if we must have forms of prayer, let us have this first, foremost, and chief. But let none think that Christ would tie his disciples to the constant and only use of this. And I think Spurgeon is, is, is talking about this idea of elaborating, of expanding, using the prayer as a framework. Another person who's talked about the prayer this way is Dallas Willard. And in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he talks about his own experience of praying the Lord's Prayer. And he says this, he talks about how he grew up praying it, just reciting it uh, in unison uh, with other Christians. He says, but at some point, for reasons I cannot explain, I began to use it in a new way, taking each phrase of it and slowly and meditatively entering into the depths of its meaning, elaborating within it important details of my current life. At times, I will use just the words of the address, Our Father, filling the heavens to establish and reestablish address and orientation as I go through the day. For some reason, I especially profit from using those words while driving Los Angeles freeways. <laughs> they put the vast, sprawling urban landscape with a greater population than many nations into its proper perspective before God, and they transform my sense of who and where I am. There is, of course, much more to prayer than the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer that teaches us to pray. It is an enduring framework for all praying. You only move beyond it, provided you stay within it. It is the necessary base in the great symphony of prayer. It is a powerful lens through which one constantly sees the world and God as God himself sees it. So as we think today about the Lord's Prayer, I, I want to invite us to take up this teaching of Jesus about the centrality of prayer to life in the kingdom of his heavenly Father. And the centrality of taking these words and using them as a window into all of what Jesus had in mind as he walked this earth. This is my Father's world. You see, when Jesus lived his life, kind of like Dallas Willard drove the freeways of Los Angeles, he wasn't just living in his own narrow, self-described, self-contained world. 
I appreciated a few weeks ago when Beth talked about worship being a kind of protest. That when we worship, we, we protest against the narratives of our culture. We protest against the narratives we've internalized that say we are something different than or other than a beloved child of God. And so the Lord's Prayer is a bit of a protest. And perhaps this week as you drive the freeways of Los Angeles, you might sit for a few minutes with the Our Father. And just allow that phrase to unfold. Talk to God about His fathering of you. You can even tell Him you don't think He's a very good Father if that's where you find yourself. Jesus always comes to us where we're at. And so we always pray from where we're at. And we use this prayer as an invitation into His Father's rule and reign. Let me uh, pray for us. Jesus, I I thank you so much for teaching us how to pray. And Lord, I thank you that uh, many of your servants have come along throughout church history to talk about prayer and to show how to use your prayer to enter more deeply into life with you. And Father, I pray for this congregation, for these brothers and sisters who are gathered here today, Uh, Lord, we we want to meet you right where we find ourselves. And if we can take one more step with you, we want to begin uh, to talk with you and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day uh, what we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Please, Lord, we're weak, so lead us not into temptation, and we're vulnerable, so deliver us from evil. For it's your kingdom, and you have all the power and all the glory forever and ever. That's just the way we want it. Amen.